Hello, and welcome to Special Issue, Wiley's podcast for societies about all things scholarly publishing. I'm Stephanie Wilson. In this episode, we'll listen in on the talk given by Wiley's Director of Research Integrity, Chris Graff, at our recent virtual research seminar for society publishers, faculty, librarians, and others. Chris discusses the roles that all of us in the research community, including publishers, can and must play in order to uphold research integrity. We'll hear real-life scenarios where research has been questioned and their outcomes, as well as suggestions for future practices. Here's Chris. So today, we're going to start by exploring what we mean by research integrity and the roles that we have as editors and publishers in shaping its future. We're going to learn about uh, current challenges from an editor and a publisher and a journal perspective and how everybody involved in research can help to uphold research integrity. JST, Japan Science and Technology, and it's their conduct for responsible research activities. So JST, in its guidance, also chooses both of those things. Yes, a conversation about research integrity would be about misconduct, but also about improving the system. They start by strictly condemning any misconduct in research activities. But then they move on to say that JST believes in honesty in research activities and how important that is for Japan, which seeks to develop itself through technology. And then they say that JST supports honest and responsible research activities and also that JST will promote education in research ethics and reform research. So that's nationally at Japan. Let's think beyond Japan and internationally. And a good point of reference here is the Singapore statement from the World Conference on Research Integrity, the WCRI. And this uh, statement was the product of input and effort from 340 attendees of the WCRI meeting in 2010 from a diverse range of stakeholder groups, including researchers, funders, um, representatives of research institutions like universities, and also research publishers. And once again, we see the emphasis on systems that boost the quality of re and reliability of research. Um, the, the, the guidelines themselves list 14 responsibilities for stakeholders. 12 of those are positive and affirmative steps that boost research integrity. Only two of their recommendations relate to irresponsible research practices. So once again, we have the focus on improving the systems as well as addressing misconduct. So nationally in Japan and internationally around the world, there is a great deal of effort going into systems and approaches that improve the integrity of research.
But of course, we do see issues. Uh, this is how COPE, the Committee on Publication Ethics, thinks about and organizes data on the cases that editors and publishers like us see into a formal taxonomy. Uh, before I reflect on the items in the taxonomy there, a, a little reminder about COPE. So COPE is the Committee on Publication Ethics. It's a membership, uh, membership organization and provides support for editors, publishers, and other people involved in publishing ethics um, with the aim of moving towards a culture of publishing uh, where ethical practices become the norm. In the Cope taxonomy, there are 17 main classifications of problems. And um, the, uh, the, bold, the bolded uh, classifications on the slide are the most common issues that we see at Wiley when we look at the problems that we see. So authorship, correction of the literature, data-oriented problems, questionable behavior, and plagiarism are the majority of the issues that we see at Wiley. What matters a great deal is the intention behind the problem. Um, and of course, that's a, a quality um, which may be impenetrable to the observer. From the outside, it may be impossible for us to understand the intention. And that makes mm, assessing problems really quite challenging. At Wiley, we're also seeing that problems are becoming increasingly complex. For example, we might have authorship manipulation and the inappropriate attribution of authorship of a piece of scholarly work uh, by adding authors at revisions. Or we might have peer review manipulation where the manipulation inappropriately influences the independent assessment of the research by using false identities or false emails. Or we could have image manipulation where Western blots or similar data are manipulated, resulting in the publication of fabricated or plagiarized research. And many of these characteristics come together when paper mills are involved. So when there is a, an organization behind the manipulation, not just um, a dishonest individual. What are the drivers here? Well, they publish or perish financial motivations. And there's a, a clear role for uh, technology and editorial standards to help address these increasingly complex issues. The first thing is to remind everybody that journals don't investigate or make findings of misconduct. 
That's the job for universities or regulators to do. Instead, journals ensure that what they've published is correct and that it conforms to expected legal and ethical standards. And that's what these cases show. So this case study is about what constitutes authorship. And here's the story. So a peer reviewer has agreed to review a manuscript and they do it. Um, after reviewing the manuscript, they demand authorship because they report that they had provided materials that were used in the research. The question is, should they be an author? And I think I'd agree that it does require careful consideration. Here are, here are some of the things that need to be thought about. The first thing is that, um, you know, authorship criteria require that each author has made a substantial contribution and takes accountability for the research. The most commonly cited guidelines for authorship are from the organization called the ICMJE. And their guidelines try to bring some clarity there and they're quite used quite widely. Um, we've seen cases where an individual has signed uh, a materials transfer agreement that has stipulated authorship if materials are provided and used as a condition of providing those materials. And that's questionable, really. Uh, it, it may be that providing the materials is a significant contribution, but perhaps the um, author, the materials provider, needs to have done more than simply provide the materials to meet the ICMJE authorship criteria. In which case, maybe acknowledgement rather than authorship would be more appropriate. Um, and, and certainly the reviewer should have declared a conflict of interest to the editor um, who invited the reviewer to peer review because there is a direct relationship there and, and some sort of conflict. Anyhow, in the majority of cases where there are authorship disputes like this, um, the outcome is that the journal puts a manuscript on hold, usually um, uh, until the issue is resolved by the institution where the work took place. And that seems appropriate because it doesn't seem to me to be the journal's job to, <laughs> to uh, mediate in an authorship dispute. More, it seems to be the institution or university's job to do that. Move on to the second case. So this um, case is about plagiarism. And again, in a very simplified way, a reader alerts a, a journal to apparent plagiarism in a published article, and the reader uh, requests a retraction. What should the journal do? Does this um, case this time, does it have an obvious solution? Is it uh, on the one hand, black and white with an obvious solution, or, or is the um, consideration and judgment required and making this a sort of a gray a gray area? So when um, we see a, a case of possible plagiarism, 
we like to think about a number of different things. So first, um, it's important to consider where in the article the text similarities occur. Um, it's also um, important to consider whether it's direct copying and pasting, i.e. theft, or whether it's use of a prior published article more as inspiration. Uh -huh. um, and then whether the, um, the uh, new article, whether that, the data in the article are authentic and the results are new. And so if the data are authentic and the results are new, then it's possible that a correction could be the could be not definitely but could be the appropriate way to attribute and quote the text from the previous publication by the addition of a citation and a proper attribution to the um, duplicated text. Um, but if no, if there are no new data, then indeed a retraction could be appropriate here. And so it does feel a little more black and white, this one, than the last time. But I also think that there has to be more consideration. In fact, I always think there needs to be more consideration. Let's um, finish off with a few thoughts about how we can shape the future of research integrity as editors and publishers. Um, no one stakeholder can create a system that boosts quality and reliability of research alone. And what we need to focus on here, and I'll read you a quote from the um, article in Nature, is that um, as we've explored, research misconduct encompasses fraud and fabrication and plagiarism. Um, but, and it's essential to deal with such dishonesty thoroughly and fairly, but, but it's, this doing this is patching up a tear after the damage is done. Of course, research integrity includes investigations, but it's much, much more. It's about creating systems that boost the quality and relevance and reliability of all research. And, and all of us have got a role that we can play there. Next, we need to think about how we can foster best practice via local networks. And that means thinking globally, looking for global standards and applying those um, locally. And then what about us as editors and publishers? Well, then we can, in response, establish clear policies and processes that uh, elevate research integrity. Our goal editorial should be to help um, authors to deliver as much clarity as is possible and a complete and rigorous account of what happened in their research so that um, readers of their research can trust that research. And that's what these guidelines set out, the standards that you can adopt to do exactly that. The third recommendation would be to support collaborative training and reaching out with the things that we know about as editors and publishers with our knowledge and our expertise. Open research the theory is that we'll improve accessibility to research content, of course, um, but also reproducibility and the integrity of research outputs. 
So let's focus on three areas um, where Wiley supports open choices for researchers, uh, open access, um, uh, preprints and open data. Um, many other researchers are now embracing preprints in numbers that previously have not been seen. Preprints have been a tradition in some disciplines like physics since the 1990s, but other communities were much slower, um, much slower to embrace uh, preprints. Um, since 2013, though, uh, biologists have begun to embrace preprints using bioarchive. And this chart from the magazine Science has a timeline of the you know, now explosion of preprinting. Most of the journals at Wiley don't require or mandate that, um, that researchers share their data, but instead they mandate that researchers explain whether or not they've shared their data in the data availability statement. So it, there is evidence talking about open access to indicate that papers which are freely available um, obtain more citation, in fact, 18% more citations in the work from a researcher called Heather Piwawar, who um, looks in some detail at open research practices. It's also true that data from Wiley, our own data, suggests that um, this is true. Um, so for open access articles, they receive, at Wiley, they receive three times as many downloads, um, twice as many citations, and five times as much attention from altmetric scores. That's the end of my presentation. Thank you very much. Thinking about how we can shape the future of research integrity as editors and publishers requires us to think globally and be clear about the expectations that we have for scientific research. Through collaboration, we'll be able to help our authors deliver research to wider audiences, research that the audience can trust. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. For Wiley, I'm Stephanie Wilson, and you can find more episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing in iTunes or wherever you like to listen. You can get more news and information on society publishing from Wiley on Twitter by following us at Wiley and Research and on our website, wiley.com slash network slash society leaders. Our theme music was produced by Medine, and this episode was edited by Dennis Velasco. Thanks for listening.